You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. This year has seen no shortage of hardships, from the pandemic to the wildfires to clashes on the streets. It's been one stressor after another, and for many, all this is taking a toll. I felt like I was trapped, honestly. I felt like I was stuck in this, like, this world that didn't make any sense. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today we have a special presentation to share with you. As part of the national I'm Listening campaign to promote awareness about suicide prevention, we're taking a closer look at the growing mental health challenges facing many Bay Area residents, and also highlighting the community groups stepping up to provide support. I can't change a lot of aspects of my own situation, but I can make something that's been awful like a bit better for someone else. Quick production note, this is an abbreviated version of the I'm Listening program broadcast on Wednesday evening. You can find the full hour program at kcbsradio.com. Well, we have a lot to get to, so joining me for this conversation today is going to be my colleague, KCBS news anchor, Patty Rising. Thanks for being here, Patty. Quite a year we're having. You know, I'm trying to avoid using all the cliches like troubled times, unprecedented, difficult, but... I'm just going to say it. It's been hard. I mean, this is the year that they made all of those cliches for. So I think if there was ever a time to use them, this is it. We're forgiven. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it seems like these feelings are pretty widespread as well. So to get a fuller picture, we called up the folks behind San Francisco Suicide Prevention. That's a community-based crisis call center. Yes, we spoke with Van Headwall and Meg Sierra. They receive calls all the time from Bay Area residents in crisis, so have a very good vantage point from which to see all the hurt that is out there. Starting with Van Headwall, we asked what has 2020 looked like to him so far? With all of the things going on right now, we're having a higher rate of um, folks are calling in feeling very isolated, higher rate of uh, more mental health issues are coming up for our callers. Um, including loneliness, isolation, um, anxiety, depression, you name it, really. A lot of the, a lot of the things you would consider um, to be a part of what we're all experiencing, our callers are definitely experiencing maybe on a little higher level. Specifically, our high rate of call system um, has kind of stayed the same, but more of the more difficult calls that we get, the ones that are um, of a higher need per se, those have increased by at least half. So we've seen a definite increase in our in our high-risk callers is what we call them. Yeah, that, that's a big sign that there is a growing need for this kind of mental health support. Meg Sierra, the hotline manager for San Francisco Suicide Prevention, what would you add to that picture? Where does it hurt right now in the Bay Area? Yeah, as far as where does it hurt? I mean, I think everyone is hurting right now. Um, everyone is, has access to everything, social media and everything that's on TV. So um, we're all kind of internalizing it differently, but we're all, I think everyone's hurting right now. Are there any themes that are coming through? I mean, I understand people are under a lot of economic pressure. Are you hearing a lot about job concerns? 
um, that has, has been a consistent theme right now. And right now we're also kind of not only just looking at what's happening right now, but what will happen after the pandemic? Cause the numbers will increase, the calls will increase later. That's kind of more our assumption um, as this pandemic is, is really impacting everyone around us. So do you expect things to only get worse? That's the trajectory that we are on from a mental health standpoint? Um, I would expect so, for sure. Um, uh, Either that or or maybe a leveling out at some point, but um, definitely we've seen an increase in all aspects of mental health right now. Van Hedwall and Meg Sierra with San Francisco Suicide Prevention. For 24-7 confidential support, their crisis line can be reached at 415-781-0500. Again, that's 415-781-0500. So certainly really big challenges out there. People are up against an awful lot. But for every story of personal tragedy... There's also been stories of altruism and community solidarity. So that's what we're going to be talking about next. That's right. We're now going to take a closer look at the work of Safe Space, an advocacy group dedicated to teen mental health that's led by the teens themselves. The group's young volunteers have been working hard during this pandemic. So we paid a visit to their office in Menlo Park to learn more. Keith takes the story from there. I'm going to paint a rainbow on one of them. That's my idea. On a recent afternoon, a few weeks back... Right after the worst of the wildfire smoke had cleared, a dozen or so teenage volunteers for Safe Space gathered outside the group's office and set to work. These volunteers from high schools throughout the area take on all sorts of different projects with a mental health bent, from fundraisers to workshops to bake-offs. In this case, it's an art project, painting rocks with messages of hope, or whatever happened to strike their fancy. Tessa's gonna make a pig. Okay. <laughs> We're just kind of going with the flow. Yeah, I think I'm gonna like draw a little, Aww. you know, heart on this or something. And so, where, where are you planning to place them? I don't know, just anywhere where people can see them. Maybe like in the park and just like in downtown Menlo Park. But of course, this morale-boosting arts and craft project isn't just for nearby residents. It's also a chance for some good old-fashioned bonding time for these teens, and it's long overdue. First time we've seen each other in six months. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see everyone. During the pandemic, meeting up for these students has mostly meant Zoom calls or text messaging. And this loss of face-to-face connection that many teens are experiencing has mental health experts concerned. That's because young adults are already among the most vulnerable to suicide risks. And now, following months of quarantine and isolation, youth anxiety and depression rates seem to be on the rise. I was missing my friends, so I just like kept getting, I get, got lonelier and lonelier. One student for whom this lockdown has been especially challenging, Kai Doran. When you let yourself like feel alone for too long, you start thinking that you actually are alone. The Menlo Atherton High School senior, who goes by they, them pronouns, says the sense of isolation worsened other mental health challenges, and by June, they reached a moment of crisis. Even though I didn't want to think it was true, it just felt like Maybe it just felt easier to say, like, I'm alone than to, like, reach out. So instead of reaching out, I just, I tried to take my own life. Kai was not as alone as it seemed at the time, though. Following that dark moment, many reached out. And that support marked something of a turning point. Because I kind of realized, like, okay, this doesn't actually seem like it's going to be an option. 
because there's all these people that actually do care about me that I should have reached out to, that I should have talked to, that I just, it just never occurred to me that they cared. Most meaningful to Kai, the friend who got a COVID test so that they could meet up safely and share a hug. I don't know. I know it sounds ridiculous, but something about the fact that she got like a cotton swab, like stuck all the way up her nose. And like, it's an unpleasant test. And she did that just so I could have a hug. And also important for that turning point, Kai's volunteer work. <laughs> Kai is another one of the student volunteers for Safe Space helping out with the many events and projects that we heard about earlier. And in addition, Kai also trains other students in crisis intervention skills, as in teaching them what to do if they're worried someone they know might be contemplating suicide. We talk about like warning signs and how to recognize them, how to respond and how to have, like how to start that conversation. It's heavy duty stuff. No one feels happy after leaving that class. But motivating Kai is the belief that these skills in the hands of more people can save lives. So for Kai, the volunteer work itself carries a lot of meaning, and doing it has helped with their own mental health struggles. Like, it just got me out of my own head. It's given me purpose and hope, just because, like, I can't change this whole situation, and I can't change a lot of aspects of my own situation, but I can make something that's been awful, like, a bit better for someone else. Giving and receiving, staying connected. It's what we're all going to need to do to make it through this pandemic. And you don't need to be an activist or a mental health expert to make a difference. Sometimes, all it takes is one friendly text message. It can really go a long way because when someone did check in on me, it felt like it felt like being seen. It felt like being like understood. It felt like just being loved. That was Kai Doran with Safe Space in Menlo Park. If you're just joining us, this is a special edition of KCBS In-Depth dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention and mental health. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Patty Rising. So, Patty, we were hearing there about the importance of staying connected. Obviously, this is a particularly challenging time to make that happen for the teens that we just heard from, for a lot of other people as well. Uh, I know that I feel a little bit disconnected myself, not being able to go to the KCBS station. Haven't seen a lot of my colleagues in months and months and months. You actually do work at the station. You're one of the few that are still in the studio uh, working because you need to run the soundboard. Uh, How are things uh, going this year for you, isolation-wise? Well, you know, I really appreciate it. I get the fact that I'm lucky that I get to put my work clothes on, I put makeup on, I drive into work. There's still a semblance of some sort of routine. But when people think, oh, you're still at work, I mean, I'm grateful, but it's not the same. I'm one of three people here. We're masked up. We're 20 feet away. So it's still isolating. It's not as isolated as others. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, just even the things that are uh, on on their surface, the same as they were before the pandemic, they're a little bit different too. Uh, Although I, I will note that you know, for, for all the isolation, this also has been a real time where, as you know, we heard in the story uh, that we just presented a moment ago, a lot of people have been going out of their way to reach out. I've had a number of friends that I haven't really talked to much uh, in years, you know, taking the time to call me up, have a conversation. Have you had that experience as well? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of text messages. We've tried to do FaceTime. We tried a one time a, a Zoom happy hour, uh, experimenting with different ways. I really like seeing people's face. Do you feel that same way? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do miss seeing people's face. But I I guess that's the silver lining of all this is it's 2020 and it's possible to do that online. So and uh, it's not too hard to do. It's not too hard to call up your friend and make a text message and uh, reach out. It uh, doesn't take up too much of your day. And uh, I think it 
in my experience, it's made both of us feel better for the most part. I even FaceTime with my 81-year-old mom, so anybody can do it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A low barrier for entry these days. We're going to move on now to our next community profile. So far, we've been focused mostly on the challenges of the pandemic, but of course, that's not the only major news of 2020. In late May, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis sparked nationwide protest and an ongoing movement for racial equality and criminal justice reform. It's been a time of hope, a time of rage, and for some, a time of deep anguish as old wounds have been opened anew. We spoke with one Bay Area group that's working to heal some of that pain through, as they say, resistance. Patty is going to bring us this story. I'm excited to be on here to see so many families because uh, I haven't been able to get to some of the events. It is yet another Zoom gathering like so many others held since the pandemic began. But all the participants on this call are bonded by a very specific pain. They have all lost a loved one to violence, in most cases during altercations with police. Uh, my loved one's name is Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. That was my father shot and killed in November 19, 2011. When loved ones are impacted by any act of uh, violence. They are traumatized. That's Beatrice X. Johnson. She and her husband Cephas are some of the key organizers behind this meeting and many, many others held for these families over the last several years. These meetings are opportunities for connection, for understanding, for activism, but you will also hear plenty of music and even laughter too. Uh, uh, B. Sing, sing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a little bit and that's it. All right. And, and they forget too, how to have fun because the, that trauma changes your life. Everything that you knew and how life was before that moment in time becomes different. And your ability to find joy is wiped away. He is speaking from experience. Cephas, also known as Uncle Bobby, is the uncle of Oscar Grant, the 22-year-old man shot and killed by BART police in 2009. Since his nephew's death, Uncle Bobby has been organizing for civil rights causes, and in 2014, he, along with Beatrice, or Auntie B, co-founded the Love Not Blood campaign to carry out this community support work. Before the pandemic began, the group's in-person meetings could draw well over 100 people at a time from impacted families. Uncle Bobby says that the campaign pays families travel expenses and also provides professional mental health counseling. They'll come, they'll meet other families, and then they'll meet a psychologist or psychiatrist that can help them begin to see their trauma as something that is part of the process of healing mm -hmm. and, and then begin to help them understand how to walk through it. And that's where we coined this phrase, it's called healing through resistance. Healing through resistance, central to the group's philosophy, as we'll hear. All told, Uncle Bobby and Aunt B have worked with hundreds of family members, and this year has been especially busy. The video of George Floyd's killing, a difficult sight for millions of Americans, but for these families, whose lives have already been marred by violence, it was traumatizing. Yes, it's, the phone is ringing off the hook, unfortunately. 
and with the families that we already have and new families, it's overwhelming for us. All this pain has real health consequences. A mental health expert who's worked with dozens of impacted family members tells KCBS many experience serious PTSD symptoms and some have even been placed on suicide watch. And the healing process has added challenges too because for these families, their loved one's last day is going to become a news story. It's going to be told and retold on TV, in the newspaper, and eventually in the courtroom. Uncle Bobby says the portrayal is not always accurate and it is not always kind. That's why it's so painful because now your loved one not only has been murdered, but then they try to murder him a second time to murder who he was as a person. And this and is where the term healing through resistance back. comes in. So healing through resistance means that we take a family that's been so traumatized and give them the emotional support first to stand. And the process of standing, we direct them to various uh, uh, venues or avenues of making the world understand that you want justice. He points to the example of one mother they've worked with, Ton Hall, whose son Miles Hall was killed by Walnut Creek Police in 2019 while suffering a mental health crisis. Giving her an opportunity to tell the story is healing to her, but at the same time, a form of resistance. In other words, she's not just going to let that narrative stay that they have used to criminalize her son, but she's going to correct that narrative, shape it with the narrative of what he, his life was truly about and what the world knew or the world should have known. And then that process of healing through resistance is really beginning. That was Cephas and Beatrice X. Johnson with the Love Not Blood campaign. Ton Hall recently won a $4 million settlement from Walnut Creek over the incident that killed her son. She plans to use the money to advocate for non-police responses to mental health crises. want to remind listeners, this is a special presentation of KCBS In-Depth. Today, we're telling stories of mental health challenge and community resilience as part of the national I'm Listening campaign dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention. We were hearing a lot about trauma in that last piece. So circling back to our conversation with Van Hedwall with San Francisco Suicide Prevention, he says that with so many stresses and strains out there right now, old traumas are resurfacing for many people. So with this so widespread, we asked him what he wished more people knew about trauma as a mental health challenge. Uh, first, I would like to say that I would really like folks to hone in on and recognize sort of some of the symptoms that might come up for them, physical, emotional, behavioral types of symptoms, as well as, you know, are they experiencing anything like flashbacks or disassociation, uh, things of that kind. That would be first and foremost, if, you, if you're experiencing some of those things, you might have some post-traumatic stress disorder types of, of things happening for you. So an initial trauma will happen and then can reoccur throughout your life. It manifests in many ways and it can just be from a triggering experience. Uh, it can happen one time, multiple, and it's very long lasting. And so, so it's, it's important to, first of all, recognize it. Second of all, uh, there is help and, and great treatment for PTSD nowadays. 
Van Hedwal with San Francisco's Suicide Prevention. You can learn more about the support they offer on their website, sfsuicide.org. Another great resource, and one we drew on for this last story, is the Association of Black Psychologists. They can be found at abpsi.org. All right, moving on now to our final story of community resilience and solidarity. Up next, who helps the helpers? On top of everything else 2020 has thrown at us, this year has also seen wildfire disasters on an unprecedented scale. Add that to the ongoing pandemic, and first responders from firefighters to police to paramedics have been under unheard of pressure. But there are a lot of people working overtime to help. Keith spoke with some of them about what it's going to take. To be here with all of you for our virtual opening ceremony. We are going to start once again with another event that's had to move online the National First Responder Stair Climb, which raises money to aid first responders suffering from post traumatic stress. This year, it's a virtual stair climb, and the countdown was live streamed. Get set, go! So, another event that's gone online. Also, another cause, first responder mental health, that's seen new challenges emerge during 2020. The massive wildfires mean firefighters working long shifts far away from home. The pandemic means new risks and extra safety measures for all first responders. And add on top of all that, civic unrest in the streets. So there's, a, there's an air of discomfort already. That's John Christie, a retired San Francisco firefighter paramedic who works with the National First Responders Fund and others to provide peer support services. He says that all these on-the-job stresses add up, piling onto a profession that was already facing a mental health crisis even before the pandemic began. Christie points to studies that suggest that more first responders die by suicide than in the line of duty. Just our nervous systems go through so much. We have a full-on flight-or-flight situation pretty frequently, and it's not what humans are designed for. And help those of us who have never worked as a first responder understand what's happening in your day-to-day that's creating this level of stress. Good question. So we're people, right? We have lives, we have families, we have kids. And we're called into extraordinary situations. And we do this all the time. One of the, one of the things I've said to people is, I've been with people on their worst day thousands of times. And that's their worst day. And we do that frequently. You know, when the last safety net fails, that's when our work begins. And so with first responders, the, the PTS injuries will accumulate especially if they're not treated properly. That, you know, that's what happened with me. When I got injured in a fire in the early 2000s, that's when the wheels kind of came off. And I really, I got into a pretty bad place. I felt depressed. It was really hard for me. And I really even considered suicide. Ultimately, it was a fellow first responder that provided the sympathetic ear and the support that Christie needed to move past his time of crisis. This experience, more than a decade ago, eventually led Christie to join the department's stress unit for several years, offering the same support he received to many others. But with a heavy stigma around the topic of mental health within the profession, many are still reluctant to ask for help. As a first responder, 
we value bravery. We value being able to handle difficult mental, emotional situations. And we value, which is kind of bravery, but, you know, running into the building that intelligent people are, are fleeing from. So what makes it challenging is if I'm saying to you, I have a problem emotionally or mentally, or I'm just having feelings I can't control, then you might think I'm weak. You know, I wonder if 2020 might end up being something of a turning point uh, when it comes to this stigma around mental health. Uh, just given how widespread all these challenges are, uh, I wonder if it would be easier for first responders to talk about their mental health challenges, uh, just knowing that so many others are going through, you know, something probably really similar. I think this could be a turning point in our broader culture. We we are at, we are have an opportunity to really step into saying, yeah, I'm going to acknowledge that I have a difficult situation now and I'm getting through it with resilience practices. But it's okay because we all are, right? John Christie with the National First Responders Fund. The fund is currently working on a campaign to train a peer support network for first responders, One way you could show your support is by taking part in that virtual stair climb. It's ongoing through October 11th. So, Patty, we heard John Christie use that term resilience practices at the end there. Uh, So he's talking about things like aerobic exercise, avoiding alcohol, mindfulness, meditation. These are some of the things that he's trying to promote among more first responders. But, you know, I figure we could all use some more resilience practices right now at the moment. Uh, Curious, what's been working for you to get through this whole mess? Well, I was always a big exerciser before this. Um, I I, I love the cardio. Running for me is meditative. And and Keith, it's just gone into overdrive. So I have to every day get outside. I run or walk at least an hour. And this is going to sound intense, but on Saturday and Sunday, I do a morning walk, a socially distanced walk with a friend. I do an afternoon walk. I do I do twice a day. Uh, two a day. I mean, that's like doctor recommended at this point. And uh, for me, uh, a similar story. Uh, I was not getting enough exercise before the pandemic, but a few months in, around about May, one of my housemates was hassling me and hassling me and hassling me. And finally, I relented and we started doing these 30-minute uh, P90X workout routines. Kind of dopey, but you know, it, it got us into a routine and just having that extra little bit of structure has really made a difference. It's made the last couple of months a lot easier to get through. I don't know that I'm necessarily in better shape, but you know, having that thing that you go to every day, it keeps you focused, it, it keeps you on task and uh, keeps you ready for the next challenge that 2020 is going to throw at you. Has that been sort of your experience, the structure of being helpful? Yes. And I totally love your story, by the way, Keith, the sense of structure, but also getting your heart rate up. And I love it that you're with your housemate and that you're doing something cool together every day. Well, we've all got to find what works for us. Sure hope everyone out there is finding what's working for them, too. At the very least, I hope this show serves as a reminder that no matter who you are or what you're going through, there's always someone out there ready to listen. And that is the name of the national campaign, I'm Listening, dedicated to suicide prevention and mental health awareness. You can learn more at imlistening.org. This has been a special edition of KCBS In-Depth. Joining me for this presentation has been Patty Rising. Thank you so much, Patty, for keeping me company. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time.
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.